welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the It's Still Raining Men edition. I'm your host, Emma Graney, and with me today we have opinion page editor Sarah O'Donnell. Good morning. Legislative columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. And city columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Miss Emma Graney. How are you doing today? I'm mm. better. Okay. <laughs> Just fine, thanks. Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> so after another week in politics, as Rachel Notley put it yesterday, actually, two steps back for women in politics. The only two women in the PC leadership race have dropped out, one of them citing harassment. And of course, Hillary Clinton did not become the first female president of the United States. So we're going to talk about that and also take a look at a scathing report by the Auditor General into the Assured Income for the Severely Handicapped Program, otherwise known as the AISH Program. Hey, Graham, as the only man with a microphone, <laughs> what are your thoughts on uh, the two ladies in uh, the PC leadership race? Yeah, dropping out. I was One actually them... at the convention last weekend. Right. And uh, we saw there, of course, uh, Jason Kenney bus in all kinds of three or one person said four busloads of young delegates to take over the PC youth end of the, the convention. And you can see at that point the other candidates in the race being really shocked by what Kenny had done because to them this is the old way of doing conventions. You bus in people and you want to get delegates You because what's going to happen is the youth executive who are elected in by his supporters will then pick delegates to the leadership convention in March. So you stack that committee and you get yourself some automatic votes. Exactly. So, you know, he's stacking the the committee. And this is the old style of doing it. So the the candidates there, other people like uh, Richard Starkey and Donna Candy Glanz and Sandra Jansen were upset by this. This is the old school way of doing things. But also we saw on the floor... Um, with the mainstream delegates, I can call them the adult delegates at the convention as opposed to the youth, they were also um, speaking, these are, dele- these are delegates who are supporting Kenny, um, more right-wing. You know, they were um, voting down a uh, resolution on the carbon tax, uh, voting in favor of parental rights. that goes against what the PCs have been doing in terms of uh, gay-straight alliances and schools. So it, there's a real shift in tone to, to the right-wing. But also playing out, I never saw, but Sandra Jansen, who's a candidate, who was a candidate, said that she was actually basically accosted verbally in the hallways by Kenny supporters for her stand in favor of abortions, pro, uh, pro-choice. Right. So she was saying she was getting a lot of stuff on social media, but also verbally to her face from Kenny supporters. And she, and I, now I didn't see this, but she said it was getting really starting to wear her down. It's been on for months now on social media. On Sunday, we had no indication they were going to pull out. But, of course, on Tuesday, both Sandra Jansen pulled out and Donna Candy Glanz. Candy Glanz was not citing harassment. She was talking about how the party's moving too far to the right. There was no more room for a centrist voice, whereas Sandra Jansen talking about being harassed. And both now are wondering, what is their future in the party? And it's more an issue for Sandra Jansen, who's actually a PCMLA. Exactly. And yeah. she's thinking that. I asked her yesterday, are you going to leave the caucus? And she said, I'm going to take some time to actually think about what I'm going to do next. But they both feel there's no real voice now or room for a voice for a centrist, a moderate woman in the PC party. And it's interesting. I mean, it's it's a twofold thing. I, I, I wrote a column that is in uh, Thursday's paper about misogyny and sexism in the party. But you know, I had a lot of people who wrote to me and said, no, no, that's not the issue. The point is that they're not progressive conservatives. They're not PCs. 
And I wrote back to these people who are all men, incidentally, and said, y- except, you see, they are members of the Progressive Conservative Party. Sandra Jansen is a PCMLA from Calgary Northwest. Donna Kennedy Glanz is the former PCMLA and for Calgary Varsity. PC cabinet they, ministers. Yeah, yeah they, they've, exactly. been, they've been PCs since before you young men uh, were, like, old enough to buy a party membership. So I, it's fascinating to me. Leaving aside for just one second, I'm sure we'll get to it in a moment. The vile misogyny and the and the like, the sort of the gutter sexism of the kind of response that that this story provoked, are the number of people who have this immense sense of entitlement to the PC brand, insisting that these women are somehow off brand, even though they represent what has been the backbone of the progressive wing of the progressive conservative party since the days of Peter Lougheed. Um I should point out that uh, Kenny. On Tuesday, the reaction from other people in the, the, the caucus, for example, um, we talked to Rick McIver. You know, right, to, yeah. He, to Sandra Jansen. And you were actually there for his Yeah, his so scrum. I asked him about that and said, oh, so Sandra Jansen is, is citing harassment. This is this is no good. Or what, what are your thoughts? And he said, well, you know, obviously there's no excuse, but people are mean to each other online. I can't really stop that. Uh, but he said, basically, color me surprised. I was not expecting that to happen at all. Now, Catherine O'Neill, who's the uh, president of the PC party, says that she's going to We'll be looking into this to figure out what's actually going on in the party. Jason Kenney yesterday issued um, a a news release or a statement, written statement, saying that uh, he was appalled by this, that uh, this is wrong, that Jansen people, if anybody in his campaign has been rude um, to other campaigns or other candidates, he wants them to apologize. the thing is, on Tuesday, he was a lot more circumspect. Tuesday, he just said, I'm disappointed that they've dropped out. Wednesday, when he saw the backlash, um, I think that he made a, a more forceful statement to say that this is appalling what actually happened yeah. to Jansen. You know, I mean, we shouldn't be too precious about this in the sense that PC leadership politics has always been cutthroat. I mean, you know, uh, when Jim Prentice, Rick McIver, and Thomas Lukaszek were going at it last time around, uh, not everybody was playing with gentlemen's rules. There is absolutely always elbows up in these races. But I think the point that Jansen is making is that this goes beyond the pale because the attacks are so personal and so sexualized. First of all, when Graham called to tell me this news that Sandra Jansen was dropping out. I gasped. I was shocked. I know that it sounded like it had been a bit of a rough ride on the weekend, but I thought that the the debates had gone fairly well. It didn't sound like those were too rough and tumble. It sounded like everyone had had the opportunity to speak and get their ideas out to the floor. Now, I don't have a stake in this fight for the PC leadership. I'm not a PC party member, but I would think that as party members, they would want to have the diversity of voices in this race because it gets them more attention, I think, when you have a really robust dialogue about policies, about all kinds of things, and including about whether you ought to re- unite with the seek a unification with the Wild Rose Party on the right or not. I think that that's more interesting and is likely to get you more attention if there's more people in there. Now, but then I also started to think, okay, so from a practical strategic perspective, if Jansen and Kennedy Glanz are gone, what does that mean for the race? Does that benefit Jason Kenney or does it benefit a candidate like Richard Starkey or Stephen Kahn? I, I don't know how you think that might play out. I Graham. think the feeling before was that the more candidates in the race, the more difficult it is for one person to get a, a majority on the first ballot. And so now that there's fewer people in the race, there's a sense that maybe Kenny can pull this off on the first ballot at the, the convention, which is in, in March. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, 
the thing is really hard to, to, to nail this down. We'll start seeing what's going to happen in the race starting next week. There'll be the first, they call it DSM, Delegate Selection mm-hmm. Meeting. That's here in Edmonton. That's yeah. in Edmonton. And we'll start to see then who the slates of candidates are. And we can start adding up the number of people who would be supporting a particular candidate. They're starting that early on the delegate? Next week. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Why wait when you can start the fun super early? Before Christmas Eve. But I would think you might want to just wait to see how it all plays out. I know. I don't wait till the first debate, which isn't the first real debate. Last weekend was a forum. The first debate's not until January. It's fascinating, too, because if you stop to think about this, we're talking about a party that is looking for an identity, is looking for a sense of self, is looking for where it's going to go next. But there, you know, there are issues here that go beyond the sexism issue. I mean... Uh, Sandra Jansen is denying that this had anything to do with an inability to raise the $50,000 stake that you need to throw in. But $50,000 is a lot of money to raise. <laughs> it's probably harder to raise, frankly, if you are a woman. Um, uh, she's insisting that she's raised the money and that that's a red herring. But, you know, there's a difference between raising the money and then gambling it away on what is a quixotic exercise. I mean, it may be that the two female candidates are more pragmatic, looked at the field, looked at how strong a presence Jason Kenney made at that Red Deer event and thought, you know, really, am I going to throw $50,000 away in the pursuit of of what? Of, you know, of, of making this my hill to die on? Uh, it is interesting to me what Graham is saying about the way people recoiled at the Kenney machine when it arrived. I mean, how did they think this was going to play out? This is the kind of politics that he learned uh, scrabbling up to the top of the heap in Ottawa. I mean, he even brought in Stephen Harper, which is a bit, which is a bit ballsy, given that Harper's relationship with progressive conservatives provincially has not always been sunny and golden. Also, pizza. He he gave the kids pizza. So I mean, you know, Stephen Harper and pizza. <laughs> who could possibly resist? <laughs> so you know, this is good planning. I mean, if if Jason Kenney is going to steamroller over all the opposition. It, it's interesting. I mean, I saw lots and lots of people on, on social media saying that Kennedy Glanz and Jansen in particular were crybabies, that they were quitters, that Jansen was a drama queen. And I thought, yeah, see, so you're going to prove that there's no misogyny by dealing in misogynist terms. And then, you know, when I wrote a column about this, people said to me, oh, but, you know, uh, Rachel Notley's cabinet are fat and ugly. I'm like, yes, thank you. Thank you again. All I'd like to thank, just take this moment now, to thank all of the men, the many, many men who reached out to me with such generous wisdom in the last 24 hours on social media and in my email to tell me, to explain to me that there was no sexism in Alberta provincial politics. I would just like to say I thank them for sharing their insights with me because otherwise I I just would never have have realized how wrong I was. That said, I mean, I understand why they both left the race. I wish they had stayed as somebody who's interested in um, the future of the province. And that's a good point that Paula raises, though. Kenny is doing the old school politics. You know, you, you flood a convention with your own supporters. You bust them in yeah. if necessary. Is it unfair? Absolutely. But it's the way people have won uh, conventions and won leaderships in the I, past. I don't even Absolutely. Know if, if it, I don't know if it even is unfair. If the rules allow for that and he's, yeah. and he's well, exercising well, the rules to their was actually a, There was actually a bit of a fight at the convention. that Oh, these, a fight? Well, oh. not a fist fight. Oh, sorry. Verbally. Come, come over over, the, over these young people coming in, there's a sense that they were all instant Tories. And they had to be a yeah, okay. member for seven days before they actually voted. Yeah. They came in and voted, and it was more like stuffing the ballot boxes. Um, 
that was the the, uh, the implication. These innocent Tories came in and took it over. There was a complaint about that to the um, the executive saying, but who are these people? And now, and we were thought, will this be overturned? Like, would, in a sense, Kenny's um, maneuver be, um, be be called back? And it wasn't. The executive, for whatever reason, said, fine, that the vote for the PC youth executive can stand. But there was that implication that was actually done incorrectly. Now, having said all of that, if it's done correctly, then this is Jason Kenney doing things, maybe the old school way, but it's, it's showing he actually can Bigfoot conventions and he can actually push this race in a direction that he wants it to go. I thought that because they weren't doing the one member, one vote strategy, that we wouldn't see that kind of thing that would kind of be like the existing pool of progressive conservatives would be the people who were moving forward to decide who was going to be the next leader. But there are still obviously ways around that. And uh, Jason Kenney is reminding well, us of some is, of so those techniques. You go back to 1985, this is the PCs would do this at the old delegated conventions. You have a uh, local writing associations and meeting to pick a slate of candidates. And they would actually then bus in instant Tories to actually vote for a slate of candidates. So it, it has happened in the past at that level. We thought, I guess maybe we thought we were beyond that because we haven't done that kind of uh, delegated convention in so long. But we may start seeing the old tricks come out. People are bust in being a member only for a matter of days to pick a, a slate of candidates. But you know what? I don't blame Jason Kenney in the least for playing hardball. If he wants if he wants the job and the rules allow him to do this, we would be naive to think, why wouldn't he do this? I mean, this is, the Marcus of Queensbury is not refereeing this event. So I don't, I don't pass judgment on him if he's using the rules strategically to his best possible advantage. It's a butt coming. But but I think but I think <laughs> I think people who don't want him to be the leader of their party, people who don't want to see the Progressive Conservative Party blown up, had better get their act together if they're gonna if they're going to now, as Sarah suggests, I mean, with Kennedy Glans and Jansen out of the race, are they gonna throw their support to another moderate like Richard Starkey or uh, Stephen Kahn? I don't know what's going to happen, but uh, if if people don't get their um, their poop together, then that's the end. Of the, that's, the, that's the end of the Progressive Conservative Party. Going back to Paula's point about um, the PCs getting their act together, um, the, the was language, the, the, the kind of the, the, the sort of the, the meme or the, the the slogan this weekend behind the scenes was um, a call to arms. The the candidates who saw what happened with Kenny coming in and doing what he did with all the, the uh, youth delegates. Other, can, other candidates were saying this is a time for us to, it's a call to arms. In other words, exactly what Paul is saying. If you want to save the party as a progressive conservative movement, we have to get uh, together. And then they began talking about how can they help each other out. So we'll start seeing, I imagine, behind the scenes, or maybe even um, maybe overtly as well, the non-Kenny campaigns helping each other to get delegates to to fend off Jason Kenny. And I'll tell you, the lesson they'd better take away from what happened in the United States this week is that it's not enough to run against someone. It's not enough to say, don't vote for him, he's mean and scary. You'd better have a reason for, them, for somebody to vote for you. You'd better have a compelling vision of the future that you offer about why you're the better choice. It's not just enough to demonize your opponent. You have to explain why someone should vote for you. Otherwise, they'll just sit on their hands and stay home and not bother. Well, that's the perfect segue, isn't it?
we're all kind of sitting here now. Who wants to take the lead on what happened in the States? Obviously, that was a couple of days ago. Well, I was watching the election results from the United States come in while I was at a casino as a volunteer. And I thought, what an appropriate really? metaphor as I'm watching the United States gamble on their future. I was drinking whiskey. But... <laughs> I was doing volunteer service at a casino. We're sitting here today. We're, we've now had two days to process the news that uh, our neighbors to the south are very important neighbors to the south. It's not just like they're neighbors we can a few blocks away that we can ignore have elected Donald Trump as president. And so now we are forced to deal with a few things. One, we have to reconcile what that says about our neighbors and whether we can talk to them or not. And sadly, the fact is we can't ignore them because for Canada and for Alberta, they are our biggest trading partner. So we have to, our leaders are having to figure out how they, I guess, put their feelings aside and put on a smile and take the cookies next door and welcome him to the neighborhood. Rachel Notley congratulated him on behalf of all the people of Alberta. And I saw some people saying, well, you know, maybe not on behalf of me, said some people on Twitter, but that's not the point. The point is that there is a form of words. Sarah is right. There are niceties that must be observed, even if you don't always think other people are nice. There's also some things that we have to think about. We have to think about the fact that the House and the Senate are now Republican controlled. So you have something that has not happened for a very, very long time, where if the Republicans in the House and Senate, who are more of the traditional Republicans, can get along with the presidential candidate. They have the uh, potential to pass a lot of policy change. We've been next to a neighbor who's been living through a logjam where you have a Democratic president and Republicans blocking policy of all kinds and making things very, very difficult for uh, agendas to move forward uh, on budgets, on all, any any host of issues, health care. It's all been very, very challenging. That could change if if they can get along. But Trump is such a wild card. I don't think we know yet exactly how that will play out, except that the Republicans who previously were like, oh, no, he doesn't represent our brand of Republicanism are now all seem to be doing the same thing that his northern neighbors do and just kind of saying, okay, well, we can work with this. The question is going to be now, I mean, Trump, what he ran on versus what he might actually do in the White House may be two different things, but he certainly ran on uh, a campaign that was filled with protectionist, isolationist rhetoric. What does that mean for Alberta and for Canada as as yep. trading partners? Um, people have some some of people have been saying, "Well, this is going to be great because we'll get the Keystone Pipeline built." But remember, if you Not actually look, at, if you look at actually Trump actually has said about Keystone, um, he wanted you know a bigger take of the action for America somehow. And you know there may be oil interests in the United States who are not particularly keen to see Canadian bitumen flowing in, not for environmental reasons, but for protectionist ones. Uh, then there's softwood lumber, which is a hugely important industry in Alberta. Our softwood lumber treaty is up. We were about to renegotiate. Um, if uh, if Trump wants to bring in tariffs against Canadian softwood lumber or, you know, go back to this old argument about, you know, stumpage and all that, uh, that could be very bad for Alberta's lumber industry. And then we have climate change, which is a, a plot that the Chinese made up, right? Well, yeah. Ra- Rachel Notley um, yesterday, when, after she congratulated Trump, said, um, you know, no matter what, she's moving ahead with the climate leadership plan here in Alberta and she also made a made a point of saying that she's going to go to bat for Alberta if and when it comes to renegotiating trade agreements. For example, Donald Trump did say he wanted to rip up NAFTA, basically. You right? yep. and, the, so. and the ambassador to Canada said that if Trump yesterday wants to renegotiate that deal, that Canada is ready to come to the table. Yeah. So, And I, I think that's going to be a large concern for Alberta. I mean, there are, the U.S. is the biggest trading partner in, in energy. 
So well, <laughs> in, in basically everything. everything. I was everything. when I was researching okay. this yesterday. I mean, yeah, energy makes up a huge portion of it, but it was more than eighty billion dollars last year that went between from Alberta to the United States. That's a lot and of money. in in some information that the Economic Development Department put out, I mean, if you look at Alberta's top twenty export locations, seventeen of them are U.S. states. And then, you know, there's China. So we really, really rely on the United States to take everything from our energy to our plastics to our wood pulp. To it's, our, it's, to it's a two-way street, don't forget. It's a two-way street. The U.S., you know, we buy a lot of stuff in the U.S. It's not as if we're just selling everything. We are a big customer for them as well. So yeah. they, they need us as well. But there are more of them than there are of us. Yeah, well, that's true. There are four, four million of us. I mean, Graham and I, I guess Sarah, too, covered the, um, the BSE crisis. When it was happening here, when the Americans this just decided, mad, just mad, as, mad cow, mad cow, just you know, bovine sponge form encephalopathy. When the Americans decided, based on precious little uh, scientific evidence, that they were going to embargo all Canadian beef, uh, and they, j- I remember being at the legislature when they announced that the Americans had closed the border, and it was sort of like that moment on Downton Abbey when they come out and say that you know that World War One has started. I mean. A protectionist American government could be very dangerous to Alberta's economic interests. And going back to climate change, um, (laughs) because you're you're right, we've got a president who thinks it's a hoax, and of course then it becomes an issue of, then what does Canada do? Because before we had a U.S. president, even though he was stymied by the Republican Congress, Barack Obama took it seriously, climate change is real, man-made climate change is real, let's do something about it, let's sign on to protocols uh, with other countries. But in Canada now, we've, we've done that, and the federal government wants to get a carbon price, and we've got, of course, the Alberta government's carbon tax and this whole climate leadership plan. But does that call into question now when our biggest trading partner is potentially not going to be doing anything on the climate change front? And, and Notley said that, nope, she's going to push ahead with it because um, they're doing the right thing, and they're still looking in terms of getting things to tidewater in Canada to try and convince other jurisdictions we're doing the right thing because climate change, man-made climate change, is a real thing. But it, And it delivers the opposition an instant hammer with which to hit the NDP provincially and the Liberals federally. And you saw that in question period on Wednesday when among the very first questions from the Wild Rose were those questions about, you know, is Alberta going to scrap its carbon tax? Is going to put... Uh, us at a competitive disadvantage now. Um, I think that there's a lot of stuff on the policy front that matters, but also I think that the results of this election are definitely going to be changing the political discourse in Alberta and Canada as well. You've seen that at the federal conservative race where right away Kelly Kelly Leach has put out statements saying that she's just like Donald Trump and supports his values and that her... uh, her screenings system for a value screening is a, is an excellent idea and talking about how Americans have embraced this kind of idea and she'll be just like Trump and stand for these kinds of values. I think that is going to be obviously very polarizing in Canadian debate and we'll see how much of that trickles down provincially. Yeah. The interesting thing is, I mean, there are all kinds of very bad things we could import from the United States, but there's also, I think, a moment that we might want to consider seizing, which may sound cold and callous, but there are going to be people uh, with capital and with entrepreneurial smarts who want to get out of the United States, whether that's in Silicon Valley, because Donald Trump has seemingly declared war on the Silicon Valley tech industry, uh, whether that's in the entertainment industry. There are is an opportunity for Canada and for Alberta, if we choose to seize it, to go out and 
talent hunt, to head hunt, uh, to affect a brain drain north. And maybe at a time when so many Americans are frightened about their future, frightened about what the racism and the the sexism stirred up by Trump are going to mean for civil society in the United States, it may sound very cold for me to say that now is the time for those of us here to put on our schadenfreude coats and go and see what talent we can recruit and what capital we can bring here, because there are going to be people who are going to not be comfortable with the business climate and the cultural climate engendered by a Donald Trump White House. I just want to um, bring it uh, to the Hillary Clinton, specifically not Trump's win, but Hillary Clinton's loss. She she won the popular their vote. It's worth keeping that in mind. That is worth keeping in mind, you know, absolutely. She, well, it's very close, but she actually got more votes. The popular vote in the U.S. backed Hillary Clinton. Do it's we just, think it's a step backwards for women? The fact that they didn't elect their first female president, or just she wasn't that popular? The fact that, that Hillary Clinton wasn't elected is not a setback for women. What I worry will be a setback for women is that some of the attacks on her I mean, some of the policy criticism was perfectly legitimate, but some of the attacks on her were so gendered, so sexist, so misogynist. And I don't just mean from Donald Trump's camp, but from, uh, you know, the zeitgeist that I worry that a lot of women are going to say, why would I put myself through that? Why would I put my family through that kind of abuse? And so... I don't think that the fact that Hillary Clinton couldn't beat Donald Trump means that no woman can ever be president of the United States. Uh, And I think there are plenty of examples from around the world, uh, whether it's in Britain or Germany or Australia or Canada. I mean, there are all kinds of countries that are quite a lot like the United States that have had women leaders without uh, without too much difficulty. I think that the, the problem is that Trump's victory has emboldened and given license to a kind of hateful discourse that is going to be very, very, very damaging to to the uh, to the political culture. Yeah, Julia Gillard was our female prime minister, but she just kind of ended up. <laughs> she she kind of launched a bit of a coup and took over from from a man, and then she was subject of horrific abuse, specifically because of the fact she was a woman. It's interesting because people have been saying to me, "Well, you know, Margaret Thatcher could do it, so why can't other women?" I'm like, well. Margaret Thatcher, let us not forget, overcame tremendous sexism and tremendous misogyny. And she just, what's Graham's word, big-footed, right? I mean, just, she just whacked people with her handbag and, and took, no, took no poop from nobody. But uh, sorry, it's been that kind of week. So, you know, absolutely. And, you know, and, and it's interesting because the sexism never goes away. It doesn't matter whether you're a New Democrat, a liberal, a conservative, a Wild Rose person in Alberta, uh, any woman who's put herself forward in public life knows that this is part of the cost of doing the business. The problem now is that social media platforms give an audience and a platform to people to spew the kind of hate that used to only come written on toilet paper in an envelope that was mailed to you. I'm going to completely switch gears now, bring it back here to Alberta. The Auditor General this week reported on the uh, assured income for the Civilian Handicap Program, the AGE Program. There were some very harsh words in there. Basically, it's not working was how that wrapped up. I've since had a lot of contact with people who are dealing with this program who have had tremendous difficulty trying to get benefits or have been told they have to pay back money two to three years later after they've worked or um, have been on disability in other provinces for 20 years. They come here and they're fighting while trying to fight cancer to get benefits. Just how big of a problem for the NDP is this program? The fact that it's really not working. The problem with so, as with so many other things is that the NDP inherited a broken system. I mean, AISH hasn't worked 
since as long as I've been writing stories for this newspaper, I've been writing stories about people who can't get age benefits, who can't navigate the system. And so, you know, the NDP inherit this. The NDP come to power in the expectation that age uh, age clients are exactly the kinds of people the NDP were supposed to be helping. And the fact that 18 months in, they've not been able to affect change in this system, I think is is very disheartening for their backers. And I think it looks bad on them because these are the most vulnerable Albertans. If the NDP can't affect change quickly enough in the system, uh, then I think it's an indictment of them, even though these problems are almost entirely of the making of the party before them. What I found really fascinating about Marin Sahar's report is it, its scathing um, analysis of how bad the website is, mm. how difficult the website is to navigate. I mean, this isn't a question about malice. It's a question about incompetence. I mean, you know, basic information that you might not like to know is apparently unfindable on the website. Uh, you know, and there's things that still require you to mail and fax stuff in. Uh, I mean, this is this is sort of website design 101, and this isn't some ideological problem. This is just a question of technical competence. It's funny on the website thing. It's come up in question period multiple times, and Human Services Minister Sevilla, he's basically said, we've redesigned the website, guys, but he's, he's concentrating so much on the website redesign that the larger questions of completely fixing a totally and utterly shattered system haven't really been addressed. The age system, Paula's right, you go back years, um, it was a, it's been a controversy for years about age now it's been delivered. You go back to Ralph Klein and his comment during one election. Um, they don't look handicapped to me. Yeah, he said of a couple of women, oh, they don't look Lord. handicapped to me. And that was... Did he? When she, yeah, when she was, someone was speaking about the challenges or yeah. difficult, oh. difficulty getting age. Oh, they, they don't look handicapped to me. And that got him in trouble, actually. But this is... An, it, really? Well, but he, Ralph he, Klein he could, could say, say a lot anything. of things and it would, people would go, and eh, that's just Ralph being Ralph. That got him in trouble. But... Um, Trump before Trump. Exactly. Uh, but the thing is, it must be really galling for the NDP now to hear questions from the wild rose about <laughs> why aren't you protecting the most vulnerable people in society? Yeah. You bad and, well, government, and, and you. you know what? And, and it, it reminds me of when Alison Redford became the leader of the PC party and she was elected on this platform, very progressive platform, and people expected that her government would fix these problems. And again, you saw Daniel Smith getting up time after time, or members of her of her caucus, speaking about these social issues and challenges and saying, and it, it made Redford and her government look bad because it made them look like they weren't speaking up for the people that they had promised to. And it also, of course, gave the NDP the ammunition, but you would expect the NDP to be talking about those kinds of issues. I guess it's good for people, bad for the government in power when the Auditor General speaks to something because the Auditor General does not have a political axe to grind. The Auditor General's job is to go in there and find out what is working, what is not, and to deliver a fairly clinical assessment about that. So when his office delivers a damning assessment like this, it's bad. They need to pay attention they need to fix it and I don't and, and I don't and if it, if it hasn't been fixed for years I mean I don't have a magic solution but I mean I'm sure they better be obviously he's got some good uh, a roadmap for them to follow yeah, I mean it's very pragmatic advice I mean that's 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 you know as Sarah says this isn't ideological this is the the auditor general saying the system like literally doesn't work it is a non-functional interface and maybe in some ways it's good for the new Democrats because now they can say well, we need to change this because the Auditor General is making us change it. 
now they've got the wild rose on the record saying it needs to be changed. Maybe now at a time when, you know, let let us be blunt. In Alberta, AISH recipients are not always the recipients of warm public sympathy. A lot of people do think deep down that this is a program for malingerers who could just get out and work if they tried harder. So uh, maybe the Auditor General's report and the reaction of the wild rose does actually give the Democrats political cover to make some real effective change. Maybe. And with that, let's move to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery. Sarah, do you have anything for us? I do. I want to recommend uh, a piece, a local. I'm bringing it right home. I want to recommend a story and a series of maps that Post Media reporter Elise Stolte uh, worked very hard to get. This is about the flood maps for the city of Edmonton. Yeah, they're awesome. So that is in, it's online, her stories, and in Thursday's Edmonton Journal. So what she had to do is the city has been doing a series of studies to find out where the overland flooding problems are in the city so that they can try and figure out how to address them. They obviously know some of the areas from, you know, the last decades of overland floods, Millwoods, for example, they've started drainage work there. But they started this work, and Elise asked a few months ago. She found out they had the maps ready. I'd like to see the maps. No, nope, can't have the maps. So she put in a Freedom of Information request. They said, no, nope, can't give you the maps. Well, she appealed that decision, and now all of us who own property or anyone who lives in the city of Edmonton can look and see in neighborhoods built before 1989 what the city assesses the flooding risk at. This is information that insurance companies themselves would have had in different forms. Now you can actually look and see and you know make some choices and start to start asking your city officials, well, what are you doing to help me there? Or And we can start to have the policy discussions that need to happen. That's a, that's a great read. Uh, Paula? I'm going to go in the completely opposite direction and recommend something. It's great political theater and it's a nice bit of escape from this from this. Uh, wearying week, uh, and that's Netflix's new miniseries, The Crown, which is about the uh, coming of age of uh, Queen Elizabeth. It begins with her, you know, with her wedding to uh, the Duke of Edinburgh and her sort of rise uh, as she tries to figure out what what being the monarch of uh, of twentieth century Britain is all about. Uh, terrific acting, sumptuous sets. I I'm not all the way to the end, but uh, but I'm, I'm a few episodes in, and it's really terrific television. Cool. I'm going to take it down to the States here. A piece on the, in the Washington Post called The White Flight of Derek Black. It is an absolutely fascinating read um, about a guy called Derek Black. Now, he was a youth, basically a youth leader of the white supremacy movement, or white nationalist, if you will. And it's it's about his his family ties. He's very closely tied to all kinds of white supremacy movements. His father started a website called Stormfront, which is basically a nationalism website. And then he decided he was going to study medieval history or some such thing, went to a liberal college. And it's about his turn from his views as a white nationalist to actually, I don't believe this anymore. His journey through having um, Shabbat dinners, his journey through having immigrant friends, and how he came to completely disavow everything that he'd grown up surrounded by and grown up believing. It is a fascinating and quite heartening read. I highly recommend it. Sounds good. First of all, I want to apologize. I I still have a cold and it just will not go away. So the coughing in the background has been me. So I apologize (laughs) for that. But quickly, um, I want to mark that tomorrow is Remembrance Remembrance Day. And there's a article uh, by the Globe and Mail's TV critic, uh, John Doyle. It's called Remembrance Day is Now Different as We Recognize What Lingers. It looks at uh, some of the, there's some specials coming on, some uh, documentaries about war and Canadian soldiers, both old and young. So now we have a whole gamut of soldiers from the Second World War and, of course, Afghanistan. 
and talking about so he's explaining what's actually on television remembrance day to watch and there's some really interesting um i think programs coming up looking at what it means to be um, a canadian and remembering the sacrifices Thank you so much for joining me. Again, another week of the Press Gallery. Uh, this will be on the edmontonjournal.com with a video. Thanks to Fearless Photographer Ian. Yay! Round of applause. Um, you, you can also find this podcast, the Press Gallery, on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and our SoundCloud channel. You can join us next week if you like. Hopefully you will here at the Press Gallery. <laughs> <laughs>